Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So this uh, retreat <clears throat> is um, entitled Connecting Mind and Heart. And I wanted to talk a little bit at the beginning how this is a, this has been a personal um, practice issue for me. Uh, just what's the role of of the mind, of the the wisdom factor, and what's the role of the of the heart, and um, what's the the best vehicle for expressing um, your uh, deepest understanding? And I um, I came to this practice. I, I think I mentioned um, earlier that. Uh, reading Be Here Now was was really life changing for me, and a number of people. I did mention that, didn't I? And um, th- I carried it around like a Bible for about three years um, before I came to um, meet Ramdas at, at Naropa, uh, that Naropa Institute, that first summer in 1974, and uh, somehow. Reading that book, um, his guru, who is really um, a, a central figure in my heart, Neem Karoli Baba, also known as Maharaji, who I never met in in um, real life. He died in 1973 uh, before I could get to India. Uh, but somehow... It, his spirit just leaped off the pages and opened my heart in a in a kind of mysterious way, as has happened with many people who read that book. Uh, and that was what brought me to Naropa, uh, and I asked um, Ramdas. I think I said about uh, meditation, and he pointed me to Joseph Goldstein and fell in love with. Uh, Buddha Dharma, but um, it was sitting um, on my own in New York City in 1974, 1975. Uh, it got to be kind of lonely, and I uh, really was missing that juice of of the heart. I sat every day. I found what I was looking for, but at times it felt a little dry. And then I heard that Ramdas was going to be um, offering a small class by invitation only um, to the the people who were supposed to come. Uh, Joseph Goldstein actually told me about the class. He said, "Hey, Ramdas is doing this class. You might check it out." And uh, I did get uh, into the class. Um, I'll share a little bit more about that process um, later on in the talk. But for, um, once I got into the class, here I was doing my Vipassana practice and just wanting to cultivate mindfulness, really believing in mindfulness and just seeing, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. But it was a little dry. And there in this class, everybody has their mala beads and is doing Sri Ram, J Ram, and you know, chanting uh, Hare Krishna and all that stuff. And I said, well, there's certainly a lot of heart here, but it's a little sloppy for me, at least for me. Maybe a little bit too, I don't know. I don't know how to put these two together. And I didn't know if I was a, a bhakta following the bhakti path, a path of devotion, or, uh, or a Buddhist. And I kept on asking Ramdas, pestering him every, every, as much as I had the gumption to, you know, what's my path? My, bhakti or Buddhist? And he would, he said a few times, don't try to figure out what your path is. Your path will pick you 
soon enough. Just You just keep on showing up and seeing what inspires you. And at some point, uh, I had a revelation. Uh, Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba's main instructions, he had three instructions. And you, there's, this is, you can see this on a uh, collection of, of um, uh, wonderful talks by Ram Das called Love, Serve, Remember. Maharaji would say, love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And one day it occurred to me that in Buddhism, the three sources of true happiness and well-being, the three roots of happiness are non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion which are exactly those first three, just with a a different order of the first two. Non-greed is a spirit of generosity, of service. Non-hatred is kindness, loving kindness. And non-delusion is wisdom, remembering, remembering your true nature, remembering God. And when that dawned on me, it was all of a sudden, you know how the, uh, the slot machines line up, you know, and the, it was like three cherries, like, boing, oh, okay. Or as the third Zen patriarch says, I quoted the other night, one burdensome practice of judging, as he says, there is one Dharma, not many, Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. There's one Dharma, not many. There's just different packages of the truth. And in Buddhism also, the Buddha talks about the difference between, um, uh, well, it's not the difference. He talks about the fact that there are two kinds of of disciples that he has. There are faith followers and wisdom followers. Some people um, trust in the Buddha or trust in the teachings and just dive in without any kind of uh, hesitation and feel the, the fruit of the teachings just because they have so much faith in the power of mindfulness and in and what the Buddha taught. He said, do this, this, and this, and you will be free. Those faith followers were very inspired by the Buddha. Then there are wisdom followers who uh, are attracted to the exquisite um, clarity and, um, uh, and, and deep penetration of the nature of reality and go all the way because they have explored for themselves, investigated for themselves, and reach the the same um, the same final fruition. Again, one Dharma, not many. One, two different um, paths or trajectories leading to the same end. And it's also in in uh, in yoga. I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, you know, bhakti yoga is the path of devotion. Jnana yoga is the path of wisdom. And then there's karma yoga, the path of service. And whichever path you take will lead you eventually if you master it to the highest realization. <clears throat> so I want to talk tonight particularly about those three Love, serve, remember. And since we're here on a Buddhist retreat, I'll uh, talk about it in terms of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion um, as the, the frame, but go back and forth between mind and heart. So, um, one other thing to say about this, about the non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion the Buddha talked very um, profoundly about 
how our relationship to experience can cultivate either suffering or the end of suffering. The foundations of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, the first foundation is mindfulness of the body, what we've been doing uh, the first part of this retreat. Mindfulness of breathing, of, sens- of postures, of uh, sensations. Um, the third foundation is mindfulness of the mind, of uh, thoughts and emotions. We started to open up to feelings and emotions uh, today. The second foundation is mindfulness of the feeling tone. I mentioned this briefly when I was talking about the aggregates the other night. The feeling tone of experience of either being a pleasant moment, an unpleasant moment, or a neutral moment. And he said, how you relate to this is going to determine whether you're planting seeds of suffering or seeds of happiness. Usually, when it's a pleasant moment, what do you think most of us do? I like that. I want that. I want more of it. Bring it on. And there is grasping, greed, or attachment. When it's an unpleasant moment, what do most of us do? I don't like this. Push it away aversion or hatred, ill will, just that movement away from experience. And when it's neither pleasant nor pleasant or unpleasant and it's neutral, most of us just kind of space out on it, don't know what's happening. Delusion, confusion, getting lost. Those are the three sources of suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. But he says, with mindfulness, you can transform that experience into seeds of happiness. When it's a pleasant moment, instead of grasping, to really be here, appreciate, know that it's pleasant, but not hold on to it. Ah, non-greed. And I'll talk, I think, later on in the retreat about how you can be with the pleasant moments without getting into grasping, but really, as the Buddha suggests, being present for those pleasant moments with appreciation, not attachment. So non-greed, when it's pleasant, when it's an unpleasant moment, instead of, no, get away, an alternative, a radical alternative, is non-hatred or non-aversion, that opens up and says, okay, this too I can be with. That non-aversion, meeting our difficulties with a friendly or compassionate attitude, transforms it. Instead of contraction, there's an opening and a learning and a discovery. Non-aversion, non-hatred, or friendliness, kindness. When it's neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, instead of spacing out, if there's enough clarity, we see clearly and we understand what's happening. And in a more profound way, we see certain principles of our existence, which I'll get into uh, later on in the talk. So right there in each moment, the Buddha said in the second Um, foundation of mindfulness, you can either be creating more suffering through greed, hatred, and delusion, or more happiness through non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or letting go generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Okay, I hope that wasn't too... um, conceptual. We'll get into, now I want to get into each of these, these non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. First, non-greed or positively put, the capacity to let go and even more positively expressed the generous heart which we all know is such a source of 
well-being and, um, and happiness. It takes practice, though, because we are so conditioned. Even though you know better, may, you know, I know a lot of people here have done some, a fair amount of practice, and there in the interviews, you know, how humbled we are. I know better, and yet I can't let go. Then it gets that much more painful. Gosh, I, I know that I'm stuck and I can't get out. Mm. But the moment that you even have a glimpse of what it's like to let go of the control that you never had in the first place, uh, how freeing it is, how, how joyful it is, how, lightening, how lighting, lightening the load it is. Letting go, which in the, in the teachings... Uh, is uh, spoken of as renunciation, nekama. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun. You know? The joy of renunciation, you know, sounds like you know oh, I'll be a martyr and I'll kind of you know sacrifice and let go. But the Buddha said this is one of the main sources of happiness. What is renunciation? It is letting go of what you think, you, of what you want, and discerning it, dis- discriminating between what you want from what you need. There's no end to our desires, but we actually need very little. And it feels really good to let go. You ever clean out your closet, you know, and finally pass pass things on you know do do you say gee maybe I shouldn't have let go of that sweater that I haven't worn for the last eight years no it feels really good to have some space wow because really what renunciation is is another way of saying simplicity simplifying our life doesn't that sound delicious yeah, maybe you've, have you seen this magazine, Real Simple Magazine? It's, it's, it's quite an interesting publication. 250 pages of one thing after another that will help you make your life simple. You know? If you get this, your life will be simpler, and this will get, make it simpler. And this. It's a very popular magazine because people just love the idea, oh, real simple? Oh, I like that. Okay. One ad after another. You know. We crave simplicity. And when we can actually let go of, of what we've been so, um, so obsessed with or holding on, there's such a freedom, there, there's such a lightness that comes from it. <clears throat> And we know this is true also in the, the full expression of letting go or um, a positive expression of letting go, the generous heart, how good it feels. Generosity, which is the first thing that the Buddha taught to uh, lay people. There are 10 different qualities or perfections uh, in, in, in one list. And... Generosity is the first. Even before morality, even before wisdom, even before um, uh, mindfulness, generosity, it feels so good to share. Because it's, it's the act of letting go that also helps us connect with others. Isn't that extraordinary? That it feels so good to share. You ever have a uh, an ice cream? You're with you're with a friend, and you have this you know incredible ice cream, you know flavor. I don't know. Jamoka almond fudge is coming to my mind. You know, <laughs> and it's so good. And you say, "Oh, you gotta try this." You know that feeling? Oh, you gotta try. Not too big a bite, but. 
But you got to try it. You're, oh, it's so good. You might be on, they might be on a diet. No, no. Oh, come on. Because we love to share. And when we actually give things or receive things, there's that connection that we have. Just think of, of something in your house or that you own that was a gift from, from someone. If you can think of something. Got something? Don't you feel a connection with that person? It's so sweet. It's the, the stuff is just the currency of our caring. I have a, I have a cup. It's the, it's the last surviving of four cups that were given at, uh, for our wedding. Um, three of them have gone the way of, imper- of impermanence. This is like 34 years ago. But there it is on my bathroom uh, counter. Every morning, I rinse my mouth with that cup. Hi, Roger. Hi, Francis. Mm, like that. It's just how it works. You know? It feels so good to share. And it feels so good to um, contribute, to make a difference in this world. You, maybe you're familiar with the the book Authentic Happiness by uh, Martin Seligman, who is the father of positive psychology. It's a, a wonderful book. It's the, the, the Bible of positive psychology. And he says that in all of his research, true happiness, authentic happiness, comes from identifying what your gifts are that you've been given in this life and expressing them in this world. In a, in a spirit of contribution. When we can't, there's a sense of disconnection or incompleteness. That's why it's so important to find out what you have to give in this world, whether or not it's in your, your job or in your uh, volunteering or in your um, just being there for, for others in an informal way. That's where the real joy comes, not from what I can get. There's a beautiful line from Shanti Deva, who wrote the 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 guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. That that is the Dalai Lama's Bible, so to speak. And this one line that I love, he says, um, "When we awaken, uh, it lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life." Isn't that a beautiful line? It lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. That's the secret of true happiness, of true wealth. So this non-greed or this generosity of heart, this is something that uh, we can cultivate it at any time. It, it changes things around from a contraction to uh, an expansion. All the wholesome qualities are qualities of expansion. And every moment that you're mindful, every single moment that you're mindful and it's a pleasant moment and you're not holding on to it, that you're learning to appreciate but, but allowing for it to pass you are planting seeds of this non-greed, this non-attachment, this letting go, and it cultivates a generosity of heart. And for the purposes of our practice, it's really important to see that this is not just about ourselves that we're being generous to, but the idea is to share our practice in whatever way we can with others. And I want to read to you, for me, uh, I think a very, for me, a very important passage by um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the the premier translator of of the Pali Canon. If you see all the thick books, the middle-length discourses and the connected discourses and the 
uh, long discourses in their thick, thick books, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi, the, the, the greatest scholar or one of a handful of great scholars, Buddhist scholars, um, really the most respected one uh, alive. And, oh, about 15 years or so, he became, I don't know if he was before, he, but he came out as this very um, strong activist making a difference in the world. And he wrote this essay, which you can get online, called A Challenge to Buddhists. He founded Buddhist Global Relief, which has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, uh, world hunger. Uh, And he's uh, very much active in um, uh, Dharma and climate change. And we've done some work together around this. Um, So this is what he says. If Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential, attracting the affluent and the educated. It will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world. A voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge, marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it points in a direction that Buddha Dharma should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. And this from Nyoshal Kempo, a great Tibetan uh, master. We're not practicing for ourselves alone since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So this is the first non-greed that is a spirit of not only letting go, but generosity and making a difference. And if you're wondering what to do, uh, there's so much in this world that could use your caring and your good heart. There's a, um, what am I going to say? Oh yeah, a phrase by Andrew Harvey who wrote a wonderful book called The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism. He says, follow your heartbreak. Just follow where your heart is breaking and uh, put your energy into that. Where, as Angelus Arian says, action absorbs anxiety. By the way, while I think about it, our manager, Kerry, uh, just came out with a book which I love called One Small Difference. She's been an activist for about 20, 25 years. And finally, I, along with others, I encouraged her, you've got something to say here. And she came out with it. And she's not big on self-promotion, so I've been kind of... You know, but it's, it answers the question, what do I... I want to do something. What do I do? Where do I begin? How do I start? Um, so uh, I, I highly recommend it and I'm going to tell her to put some out at the end of the retreat for you. So non-greed. Okay, now to non-hatred or 
a, a loving heart. We are learning to do this in every moment, how to open our hearts to our experience. And of course, when things get difficult, the first thing we want to do is to, is to protect ourselves. That's natural. And there's something healthy in it. You don't want to be in harm's way or um, put yourself in in, in um, dangerous places, but we can shut our heart off in trying to protect ourselves and close off to all the goodness in there. And the paradox is that as we learn more and more to open to the difficult, we find that we have a courage and we have a capacity and we have a, a wisdom and a compassion that can, um, that can open to anything. And so this takes some, um, some courage and confidence. Uh, the more you do it a little, you do it a little, and more and more you see, oh yeah, I survived. This is from Jennifer Wellwood. A beautiful poem, if I can find it, called Unconditional. She says, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight, to honor its form, true devotion. That's the paradox. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Have you noticed that? When you're trying to get away, get away, get away. It's like saying, don't think about a pink elephant right now. It's the only thing in your head as you run away. Or each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant Jew-like essence. This is what we're being asked to do. Robert Bly, um, great poet and, and, and deep thinker, he has this, uh, this line that uh, I love. Uh, he says, um, every part of our personality that we do not learn to love and embrace will become hostile to us. Not that you like your pettiness or your self-doubt or your obsessive wanting mind. But just like a parent embraces the whole of their child, the tantrums as well as the sweet smiles, that's what we're called on to do, to see oh yes, this is all part of being human. And any part that you say, oh no, I don't want that, that becomes your issue, your central issue. 
So what a radical understanding to shift your relationship and see instead of, oh, what a petty person I am. Oh, and here's petty Buddha. And here's, here's frightened Buddha. And here's um, lustful Buddha. And here's confused Buddha. That's what we're called on to do, to open up to that, as we did the other day for the, the meta for self, really seeing who you are. It starts with yourself. And maybe you're, hopefully, you're getting a glimpse of the power of being a little bit kinder with those places that are difficult to accept. This is the most important thing you can do on on this retreat and in your life because when you learn to open to it all in yourself, then you're able to be there for others in all of their confusion and pettiness. Oh, I know what that's like. Oh, just like me. So there's loving ourselves or being friends to ourselves. Then there's the interpersonal kind of love. We've been exploring metta and compassion and some joy where we feel a connection with others. And this is something that's quite, it didn't have to be this way. You know, I often think about it, you know, we could have been wired up. I don't know how ants are, but we could have been wired up and just kind of like, well, we're doing our job. I don't know if ants fall in love with each other, but, um, or amoeba, maybe they, no, they just split in two and just, uh, uh, but we're wired up to connect. We have this capacity not only to connect, but to feel another's experience. We have these mirror neurons that when somebody stubs their toe and you see it, ouch, oh, ah. Or looking at a a movie and there you are, oh, I hope he makes it, oh. Yes, they made it. Because there you are living through them. You can feel what they feel. That's how we're wired up. How amazing that is. But like I said yesterday when I was doing the metta, the near enemy of metta is attachment. It looks like metta, it looks like love, but it's really painful. And so this loving heart is one of uh, openness and, uh, and non-greed, but just feeling the connection. As soon as there's greed in it, the love is is distorted. Just as an example to show how this works, in interpersonal level of of love, uh, close your eyes for a moment to just do a little thought experiment. And think of somebody in your life who's really important to you. A central figure. And it could even be a complicated relationship. But just somebody who really means a lot to you. And for a moment, first wish them well. You might see them smiling and feeling your love and just sending them some loving thoughts. I really do want to see you happy. It really makes me happy when I see you happy. And maybe see them smiling and just delighted at your uh, your well-wishing for them. And notice how that feels. Oh, may you really be happy. And know that I, I, I do wish that for you. Notice how it feels in your body and in your mind, in your heart. And now... Think of what it's like when you want something from them. When you have an agenda. 
or are afraid they'll disappoint you. Please don't disappoint me. And notice how that's, that's like, what that feels like inside. Notice how it feels in your body and in your mind. Uh-oh, I hope you don't blow it. Okay, I won't leave you here, don't worry. And then take a nice deep breath and erase the board in your mind. And once again, just wish them well and delight in seeing them happy. I really do want you to be happy. And may you feel my love for you. And just wish that for them, wish them well. And again, notice how it feels inside, in your mind and in your body, in your heart. Okay, you can open your eyes. Do you notice any difference? Probably. Isn't it amazing how the people so important to us in a moment can be the source of pain? As soon as we want something from them. And that's where the, the true spirit of the generous heart of, of metta uh, is so powerful. And when some, you feel somebody rooting for you, you want to step into their, their energy field. What happens when you get a sense that they've got an agenda for you? you know, I hope you don't blow it, your kind of mind reading. You know, or you, you please come through for me. You know, then you kind of want your own space. So we, we, we can feel the energy and respond to it on a very subtle way. So the more we can have that generosity of heart, the happier we are. So that's the interpersonal love. Mm. I want to say here. Mm. This is from uh, Lewis Thomas who says, uh, he wrote this amazing book, uh, I'm, I might quote more from it later, called Lies of a, Lives of a Cell. He wrote it in the 70s. He says, I maintain, despite the moment's evidence against the claim, that we are born and grown up with a fondness for each other. And we have genes for that. We can be talked out of it for the genetic message is like a distant music and some of us are hard of hearing. Societies are no- noisy affairs, drowning out the sound of ourselves and our connection. Hard of hearing, we go to war. Stone deaf, we make nuclear missiles. Nonetheless, the music is there waiting for more listeners. And the more we can play that music the more others can hear it and hear the music inside of them as well. So, this is the, the interpersonal level of love. Then there's another level of the loving heart that I want to explore, particularly being here in practice together. Uh, And that is um, the spirit that we bring to our Dharma practice. Um, Particularly for Buddhists, sometimes this can seem like a kind of cerebral affair. As I said earlier when I was talking about um, that Ramdas scene. And in fact, that was when I first realized the heart quality of this practice. When I went to speak to Ramdas first, just to see if it was an appropriate thing for me to do, I, um, we had a conversation and he knew that I was practicing um, Vipassana. He was the one who told me to, to do it in the first place. Um, but, and I didn't know quite if, if the, the whole devotional thing was, was 
for me. So I, um, I had a meeting with him and he said, um, well, let me ask you, um, how do you feel about Jesus? And I said, he said, do you love Jesus? And I said, uh, I like Jesus. <laughs> but I don't know if I love him the way I have a feeling you're thinking that maybe I should. Yeah, I'm really inspired by his teachings. But do you love Jesus? Well, I, I don't know. You know, that, that way. And he said, okay. He said, well, how do you feel about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? And I said, I like Krishna. (laughs) Just this embodiment of celebration and 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 uh, uh, aliveness in life. But I don't know if I I love Krishna. And he said, Okay. He said, Well, how about God? Do you love God? And I said, Well, Ramdas, I was raised in the Jewish religion, like. He was. And I said, my, I don't know whether it was a Bible book that I had as a little kid or what, but my image of God was this very powerful, kind of scary man with a big beard and a book and a pen (laughs) saying, you're going to have a good day and you're not. And I'd, I said, more than loving, it kind of put the fear of God into me. Um, but when I, So when I hear the word God, I translate it as dharma, just the perfection of everything, how it all fits together. And uh, he said, okay, well, let me ask you, do you love the dharma? And with that, there was no hesitation. I said, oh, Absolutely. He said, you're sure? I said, absolutely. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? And I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, go ahead. Just say, I love you, Dharma. I said, really? And then he said, yeah, I'll say it with you. Go ahead. We'll say it together. And I felt like a complete jerk. But I said... I love you, Dharma. <laughs> and he said, I love you, Dharma. And he said, keep on saying it. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And after about um, three or four times, I felt it. I love you, Dharma. At which point, tears started coming down my cheeks. And he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> And it was a really, for me, important moment just to realize how much I love this stuff or this stuff, how much I love the truth, how much I love goodness. And I think for each of us in our own way, we have that love. If you're here, there's something that's called you deep that's touched your heart, that makes you want to spend the money and the time to do this not easy exercise that we're doing because there's something you can't ignore, that you love the truth or goodness or whatever you want to call it or awakening consciousness. And it's something where the head and the heart come together to really... Get in touch with what juices you, what speaks to you. Last year, I got another transmission while I'm at it from, from Ramdas, where uh, my, my wife Jane and I visited him. We visited him a few, a few times in the last few years in Hawaii and uh, spent some days with him. And we were talking about uh, some issue. I was, I was sharing some issue that sometimes we get snagged on and I was explaining it to him, and probably most of you know, he had a stroke about 20 years ago, and, uh, and so his, his words are very economical, but he's brighter and lighter than ever. And then as he listened to me share my 
my story, and I was looking for some words of wisdom. He said, it's really very simple. It's all about making the journey from here to here. And the power of it was um, was palpable. And I said, oh, of course. And I asked him, I said, can we do that again? And he said, yeah, it's from here to here. I did it. I said, I asked him if we could do it a few times. I just really wanted to get it anchored. And I'll invite you to do it with me. Just from here, this amazing, brilliant, critically uh, uh, critical thinker, but sometimes gets us too caught up in our problem solving and thinking. Going from here down to here. Feel the difference that just can hear and listen to the wisdom inside. Do it again. From here, the simple journey down to here. And you know, three times is a charm. So, here, make that journey down to here. It doesn't mean you abandon this as uh, Heather so so beautifully talked about last night. The, the, the mind, you know, the, the left hemisphere is, is, is it's just as uh, important to function and can create discernment and wisdom and, uh, and clarity of communication, but it shouldn't serve you it shouldn't be the master. It's the emissary, as, as she said. But this is where the truth is. In, in Buddhism, the word citta, as, she, as Heather was saying last night, citta, C-I-T-T-A, usually is translated as mind, but it's heart-mind. And when people in Asia uh, talk about their mind, they point to their heart, actually. So this is another level of this non-hatred or love, loving, loving the Dharma and getting in touch with that heartfelt connection to how much you love the truth and goodness. There's another level of love which leads to the third non-delusion. And that is the, the love that comes when there's no separation between even me and the Dharma, because me loving the Dharma is still dualistic. It's, I love the Dharma. Okay. But when you see clearly, you are the Dharma, you know, or as in, uh, um, in Hinduism, uh, the, when, when you see that God, Guru, and Self are one, or as in the Ramayana, Hanuman says to Ram, he says, when I forget who I am, I serve you. When I remember who I am, you and I are one. And this is the deepest level of love when there's no separation. And that leads us to the, the last, this non-delusion. Non-delusion, which really is another way of saying wisdom, seeing clearly. <clears throat> In Buddhist teaching, there are mm, particularly three things that are encouraged to see clearly. They're called uh, seeing through the distortions of reality, the vipalasas. That is not taking what's impermanent to be permanent, not taking what is suffering, the cause of suffering to be the cause of happiness, 
and not taking what is not self to be self. So seeing impermanence, the ungraspability of existence, and the selfless nature of reality. That is, those are the doorways to awakening that wisdom reveals. Just in every moment that you're present, you start to see how everything is changing. One, have you seen it? How many different, you said that how many different thoughts you've had? How many different moods you've had? Your body is continually changing itself. And to see that, to see through that, that permanence and see, oh, it's all, every moment is changing. <laughs> One breath, you know, you might think, oh, Breath, breathing in, breathing out. Do I have to pay attention? We just had one a moment ago. It's all all the same. (laughs) Every breath is different. And instead of it being, when you have a more refined awareness, it's, and the solidity breaks up. And then you see, wow, it's it's like putting a, 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 a drop of pond water under an, an electron microscope. Wow, it's not as solid as I thought. And you see that holding on to changing experience is completely a futile thing because it's going to be changing. As Joseph talks about it, trying to hold on to grasp to changing experience is like rope burn. Remember when you were in gym, if you're climbing the rope and if you went too fast, you're holding on to change. It's going to be suffering. And that you too are this changing flow of experience that has a certain pattern to it, but is continually transforming. And there's no place in you that you can point to and say, oh, that's me. Here's a, a little, uh, one last uh, exercise. Close your eyes for a moment and Instead of thinking of yourself as a noun, as some body, something to whom life is happening, try to shift and think of yourself as a verb, as a field of activity with a circulation system and nervous system and and digestive system and thoughts and emotions. It's all continually in flux. You are a verb. Okay, you can open your eyes. You get a sense of that shift. That's seeing through the solidity of self. There's no ownership in that. You don't control the show. The show, life isn't happening to you as much as it's happening through you. It's both. Hmm. I'll, I'll share one more thing from Lewis Thomas about this. This is another way to see yourself from Lives of a Cell. He says, a good case can be made for our non-existence as entities. We're not made up, as we had always supposed, of successively enriched packets of our own parts. We are shared, rented, occupied at the interior of our own selves, driving, cells, driving them, providing the oxidative energy that sends us out for the improvement of each shining day, our mitochondria, And in a strict sense, they're not ours. They turn out to be little separate creatures replicating in their own fashion, privately with their own DNA and RNA, quite different from ours. Without them, we would not move a muscle, drum a finger, think a thought. Mitochondria are stable and responsible lodgers, and I choose to trust them. But what of the other little animals similarly established in my cells, sorting and balancing me, 
clustering me together, my centrioles, basal bodies, and probably a good many other obscure tiny beings at work inside my cells, each with its own special genome, are as foreign and as essential as aphids and anthills. My cells are no longer the pure line entities I was raised with. They are ecosystems more complex than Jamaican Bay. I like to think that they work in my interest, that they breathe, that each breath they draw is for me, but perhaps it is they who walk through the local park in the early morning, sensing my senses, listening to my music, thinking my thoughts. You're an ecosystem. It's a great way to think of yourself. Wes Nisker in his book, Buddha's Nature, he, I love this fact. He says, right now in your mouth, there are more living organisms than have been human beings since the beginning of time. <laughs> Check that one out. <laughs> and in your stomach, there's way more. So who are you anyway? This is seeing through the delusion of a separate self. And there's a real freedom in that. So non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And just knowing that every single moment that you're mindful, you are cultivating these three. Not grasping at the pleasant, not pushing away the unpleasant, not taking ownership or identifying with this body-mind process. This is a moment of freedom. And every single moment counts. And as you more and more see the truth of who you really are, there's a tremendous lightness that comes from that awakening. So I'll just close with this short Dana Falls poem who I read from the other night. She says, settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do Nothing to be, but you, what, what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. So let's sit for a moment. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards, just this breath, awareness knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness waking up to truth.
Thank you for your attention. So there's a walking period and uh, last sitting at nine o'clock. And um, I'll share with you another uh, little uh, inspiring story about this generosity of heart and love transforming someone. So come to the last sitting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.